to the church of Philadelphia. Verse 7. Philadelphia is modern Alishair. It lays about 30 miles southeast of Sardis in Pergamian king Athalia, um, sorry, Attalus founded it. The town received its name from his nickname Philadelphus or brother love. This king had a special devotion to his brother Enumius II and the city stood in a wine producing area and was so called a gateway to Central Asia Minor. So they were known for their wine. Philadelphia is the second church that nothing has ever said bad about them. They're also the only other church that was poor. And we mentioned that when we were talking about Smyrna. To the angel of the church of Philadelphia write the following, verse 7. This is the solemn pronouncement of the Holy One, the True One, who holds the key of David, who opens doors no one can shut, and shuts doors no one can open. I know your deeds. Look, I have put in front of you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, but you have obeyed my word and have not denied my name. Listen, I am going to make those people from the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews, yet are not, but are lying. Look, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you, because you have kept my admonition to endure steadfastly. I will also keep you keep from the I will keep you from the hour of testing that is about to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one can take it away your crown. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never depart from it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down out of the heaven from my God, and my new name as well. The one who has ear had better hear, and the Spirit says to the churches. So the title that Christ used of himself for the city of Philadelphia was holy and true, who holds the key to David. This statement does not appear in chapter 1. It's the only statement that does not appear in chapter 1 when Christ was given all these descriptors. This statement does not come from Jesus. It's communicated that Jesus is the true to his promises and will usher them into the kingdom of Yahweh as the Davidic kingdom. So he specifically points out that I am a holy and true who holds the key of David. Now the closest that gets to chapter 1 is the truthful and faithful one of Jesus Christ. But nowhere is it mentioned that the, he holds the key of David. Meaning that I hold the key of eternal life for you. Not the secret teachings of Satan. Even though that was a previous church, that was a very common thing all throughout their culture. So why this statement doesn't come from chapter 1 and all the other ones did? I don't know. No one really knows. It just doesn't. Like the church of Smyrna, Jesus had no rebuke for this church. The open door is an allusion to Isaiah twenty-two, twenty-two. There's actually a proverb that says, "He will open what no one can. He will open what no one can open, and he will shut what no one can shut." This also comes from Isaiah chapter twenty-two. Jesus is declaring that he is the promised Messiah who had the key to opening the kingdom of Yahweh for those who believe that nothing else in the universe had the power to shut the door on people. The kingdom of God has always been the emphasis all throughout the Bible, not the cross. The, the, when, when, all throughout the Bible, it's been the kingdom of Yahweh, the kingdom of Yahweh, the kingdom of Yahweh. In fact, Jesus talked more about the kingdom of Yahweh than anything else in his entire life, not the cross. 
Now, don't get me wrong. The cross is absolutely essential and important. Paul says without the cross, we have no salvation. But you need to realize that the gospel is not the cross. The gospel is that your king has come and is bringing the kingdom of God for you to be finally a part of. Remember, the good news is your Caesar has become king and you're a part of the kingdom. But the real good news is Jesus is the true king. That's the gospel. When the shepherds come, they do not preach the cross. They do not preach the dying of Christ. They preach, your king has arrived. And they proclaim it, not sing it. They're a military army that's proclaiming that the warrior king has arrived, the iron scepter, the morning star. That's the gospel. The cross is the key that unlocks the door into the kingdom. And your faith is what allows you admittance. That's all. The cross is a part of the gospel. Salvation by faith alone and not works is a part of the gospel, but it is not the foundation nor the root nor the entirety of the gospel. The foundation, the core of the gospel is that God is bringing the kingdom of God on earth, ushered in by his son, the God-man. But he has also died on the cross for you so that the kingdom of God may be open to you by faith and not by works through his blood. That's the key that unlocks the door. And so what Christ is saying here is I open what no one can open and I shut on people what no one can shut. Only I can open and close the gate. My people know my voice. I am the gate. I am the way. That kind of stuff. And this is the idea that is being communicated here is that he can do what no one else can do. Just like I control the book of life and whose name goes in it, I control who enters into the gate, into the tabernacle or the kingdom of God because I'm the one that holds the key. I know how little strength that you have, but you've obeyed my word and have not denied my name. I know how this world has just beaten you down and worn you out. Some of you, you can relate to this. You feel like you've done everything that is right. You, you know you're not perfect, but remember, nobody's perfect but people who love God and pursue repent. And you feel like you try to do the right thing, you try to live a good life, you've messed up, you've made lots of mistakes, but it has mattered to you, it has bothered you, you've repented, you've done what you can. Yes, there's some things that you will learn later in your life, if only I wished I knew that when I was younger, if only I could change things back then, but you did the best with what you had at that moment, and Christ also knows that. And now you're just tired and beaten down. It could be because you've lived a long, hard life, or because you're pretty young, but life has just been really hard. And some of you can relate to this. I feel like I have little, little strength left. I feel like I've led an unremarkable life when it comes to, like, the world. I feel like this sometimes. Like, I'm just this, like, guy in a small Christian school who has a family and three kids. And I'm not charismatic, and I'm not, like, out there. And I don't feel like I've, like ended anything or started some institution that's going to stop like homelessness or whatever like it's not it's 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 easy to think just like what have I done you can think that but what God is saying is I know that I know that life has beaten you down I know that life is hard I know it doesn't look like your life has been impressive compared to them 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 them, them. but has he ever said that now once in these letters he says I know the great accomplishments that you've had I know the great institutions that you've created. 
I know the amazing ministries you create. He says, you have been faithful to me, you have persevered, and you have good deeds of love. You will conquer. You will conquer. All he cares about is the heart. The heart will automatically produce fruit. And the fruit is exactly what he wants. You give him your heart, and he will produce the fruit that he wants. And it may not look like everybody else's fruit, and it may not look like the shiny fruit of the world that's rotten and dead on the inside, but it's the fruit that he wanted to produce with you, and it will be fulfilling when you get to the kingdom of God. It will, it will be, when you get to the kingdom of God and you can see the fruit in the way that he can see it, it will finally be fulfilling. And he won't be tired, and he won't be beaten down, and he won't be exhausted anymore. So I know that you have little strength, but you have obeyed my word, and you have not denied my name. Right there. But you, but you built incredible institutions of power and influence. But you, you, you saved thousands and thousands and thousands of people with your amazing preaching. Not that those things aren't good and that you shouldn't be striving for those things, but he says, I know that you have obeyed. The Gospel of John, Jesus, the only time, the only time that Jesus ever calls you his friend. It's in chapter 14. He says, if you love me, you will obey me. And when you obey me, I will go to the Father and ask him to reveal more <laughs> of his teachings to you. And then you will obey those. And I'll go to the Father and ask him more. And then you'll obey those. And then you'll just get deeper and deeper in your knowledge of Christ. And you will be my friend. That's the only criteria. Not the ministries that you've created. Those are good. Only if you're obeying and doing it, and God has led you to it. Not when you've allowed it to pump you up or think, but I didn't do that. Just obey. You have not denied my name. There's a second one. You not, didn't deny me. You're faithful to me. That's the most important one right there. Listen, I'm going to make those people from the synagogue of Satan, we've already talked about them, who claim that they're Jews but are not. He's not saying that they're not literally ethnic Jews. He's saying they're not Jews in the biblical sense. True Jews know my voice and follow me. But they're not. So they're not actually real Jews. Remember, I can make distance out of these rocks from Abraham. They're not, but they're lying. Look, I will make them come and bow down at your feet. The world who has forced you into submission and beaten you down and oppressed you and exploit you will eventually come and bow down at your feet as God lifts you up one day. And you will not stand there pridefully and arrogantly like, yeah, that's right, it's my turn now. Because you will be redeemed. In fact, most likely your heart will be broken for them. But they will honor you. Now, don't take that literally, like literally the entire world is going to come and bow down to you. But the idea is that they will all know that you belong to me and I will be proud of you. And they will know that. I will keep you from the hour of testing that is about to come on the whole world. I will keep you from the great judgments to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have. The, no one can take it away, your crown. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of God. He's going to make you a pillar. The temple of God is Peter. Peter in chapter 2 says, 1 Peter chapter 2 says, the Christ is the living cornerstone, the most important stone. That is a stone that has to be the most level and the most plumb because every other stone is being built into it. It has to be the stone of perfection. 
And Peter says that is Christ. And he's not dead, he's living. Now, why is that important? In the ancient world, especially among the Canaanites, if you wanted the gods to bless the house that you were building, or the gate that you were building, or the city that we're building, you would take your firstborn son and sacrifice him as an infant, put him in a stone box, and lay him as the foundation stone to your building, and build everything else into it. Yes, you don't like killing your son, but it's better than the gods wiping out your entire family because you don't worship them. God says, you don't have to sacrifice your son to be blessed. I will lay my son as a sacrifice. But he conquered the grave, which means he's not some dead stone. He's the living stone. He's been resurrected, and he's the foundation cornerstone, and that you are all living stones being built into him. This is why Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. I don't want you to kill yourself for the kingdom of God. I want you to give me everything. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and muchness. That's what it actually says. That's the idea that's being communicated here is that you are to sacrifice. Christ is a sacrifice, but he's a living. You are to sacrifice your life, but you're living. And you're all being built into him. And for those who follow me, I will make you a pillar. You may not feel like you're a pillar in the community that you live in. You're not the most successful businessman that it speaks and everybody says, oh, you're not building these corporations that everybody wants to buy from. You may not even be the leader in your church that's commanding and whatever. But I will make you a pillar in the kingdom of God. I'll make you a pillar in the kingdom of God. And if you've seen the pillars of the Roman Empire, they're huge. Look at the temple in Athens. They're huge. And they're still standing after all these thousands of years. And that's what man built. Imagine Christ establishing you as a pillar. You will be a pillar. And then I will write my name. I will write the name um, of my God and the name of the city on them. Some people have disputed, is he writing his name on you? Or is he writing it on the pillar? And the answer is yes. <laughs> because you are the pillar, remember? And so I don't know how, why would we argue that? He just literally said, I will make you a pillar. The idea is that when we hear his name, and remember, you, it's the idea of carving your name into something and saying, that's mine. It belongs to me. It's the minting idea. And no one can erase it. No one can blot it out except for Christ. And if you persevere, he will never blot you out. And so your name is written. And his name and the city of his new kingdom is going to be written on you in the pillar. The idea is the pillar, and that's what Romans would do. They would write their names or monuments and things and say, here is Pilate. In fact, for a long time, people were like, there's no Pilate. The Bible made that all up. And then we literally found a pillar with Pilate's name as procurator. Okay? And that's the idea. I will make you a ruler. I will make you a conqueror. I will write your name on my pillar. I will make you my pillar. But also, when we get the book of, or when we get the book, we are in the book of Revelation. When we get to chapter 7 of Revelation, he's going to write on their foreheads. Okay? They're going to be sealed on their foreheads. And, the, and that goes back to Deuteronomy 6.5 or 6.4. Um, write these things on your forehead and your arms and that kind of stuff. And we'll talk about that more when we get there. But the idea is I'm going to write it on you. I'm going to write it on your forehead. I'm going to write it on you on the pillar. You're, you're, going to just, you're going to be so thoroughly etched that no one can erase this. 
No one can blot it out. The New Jerusalem comes down. We'll talk about that a lot more in chapter 21, 22. But it's the kingdom of God coming down to earth because the ultimate destination is not heaven, but kingdom of God on earth. The new name. The one who has an ear had better hear and the Spirit says of the churches. So this is what he's called them to. 